Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books. Uh, This is the channel dedicated to the Journal of Women's History, a podcast on the New Books Network. Uh, I'm Professor Jane Wickersham from the University of Oklahoma, and today my well, and I'm a guest host today, and today we'll be talking to Professor Amanda Scott about her new book, The Basque Sororas, Local Religion, Gender, and Power in Northern Iberia. So Professor Scott is an assistant professor at Penn State uh, in the Department of History. Uh, She's a social and cultural historian of early modern Iberia with expertise in the Basque country, the Spanish Empire, women's history, religion, courts, and the law, and with broader thematic interests in comparative reformations, monasticism, witchcraft, and the Inquisition. Uh, She did her PhD at the Washington University in St. Louis, and I believe this is her first book, so congratulations. Amanda, welcome to the podcast. And just to sort of get us kicked off here, I was wondering if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself and how you sort of developed and came to this utterly fascinating project. Well, thank you, first of all, for having me here. And it's really exciting to be able to talk about my book in this format, especially as I mentioned, uh, or I keep saying that, like, it's such a weird year for the for books to come out. So I do appreciate you having me here. Absolutely. Uh, It's our pleasure. So I started this project, actually, I stumbled upon these sources as an undergraduate, actually, in the first, um, in sort of my first foray into the archives as an undergraduate at William and Mary, working with Professor Luann Holmesa. Oh. Uh, she took a, a handful of um, advanced undergraduate students to the archives our senior year, um, working with us in paleography and sort of setting us up to kind of learn how to pick a research project from archival catalogs. In our case, uh, we were working with the archives of the uh, the diocese of Pamplona in Navarre in Northern Spain. And I started off working on a handful of trials and this was just over a week's time over spring break my senior year. Um, And I was interested in clerical misbehavior. Uh, So I pulled a handful of trials, found sort of um, corollary parts in the general archive of Navarre, but mostly focusing on diocesan records. And I kept encountering these women who would be testifying against the priests, um, offering information, um, evidence, and that they were taken seriously as um, as people who could offer testimony about a priestly misbehavior. Um, the, the documents referred to them as sororas or as freilas, uh, but all the dictionaries would always just sort of um, identify these women as as nuns, which was pretty clear from the trial records that they were not nuns. Um, so that project that I started as an undergraduate turned into my master's thesis on clerical misbehavior, um, but I was still interested in who these women were. And so kind of that was sort of the question that started the book, like who were the sororas and what was their role in their communities? And kind of realizing that 
there had been so little work done on them and that they were generally so misunderstood or overlooked, considered not important, um, that's, that gave me um, enough interest to say that this would be a good project to pursue my PhD in. You know, that's, that's really amazing that, you know, your undergraduate professor took undergraduates to Spain to do research and that you, you know, like found these women who are just so utterly, you know, fascinating. And so at, when you went to go do your PhD and, and sort of structure how you were going to research this project and also write it and the book manuscript, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, I'm curious as to your methodology as to how you went about doing that. So having started in as an undergrad technically, um, and though like I, I kind of put it on the back burner as I was more interested in priests for a while. Um, and, you know, it is a strange thing. And now like as a professor myself, like, oh, like undergrads doing paleography and being brought to the archives. Um, I realized how unusual that was, but it seemed like just like an absolutely normal thing to be doing 16th century paleography as, an, as a, a senior and undergraduate. Um, but so the fact that I started as an undergraduate and started collecting those materials and getting really familiar with the archives in that way. Um, I think that meant that I just had a very long and kind of very deep experience in a kind of a slow experience, I guess, in um, understanding the archives, kind of seeing the sources that were there. And recently, as I was finishing up the on the manuscript for this book, I counted up how many, how many weeks I'd spent in the archives for this project. And I, I, it was in the nineties, um, by a, it was a hundred weeks by the time I finished this, this book. And that, that stre- stretches back then 10 years. Wow. So my methodology then and kind of the organization for this was like spanning like far longer than any sort of, you know, computer program or like standard of like organizing all this material would, would last. Like when I started off in the archives, I was taking notes by hand so I can look back on some of those notebooks and they're just trial transcripts written by hand. As I got, you know, later into the PhD program, I started to get a little bit better at organizing things by spreadsheets. But for the most part, um, my organization was actually writing as I was doing the research. So the longest stint that I had in the archives in Pamplona and also traveling around to other archives um, all over northern Spain was a total of 13 months. And during that period, um, because I was dealing with just such a sheer amount of information, which was really both a, a good thing and surprising since there'd been nothing written on these women and then it just turned out there was just so much, um, it meant that I had a lot of material to kind of work with and there wasn't a really a... Um, a former historiography that I was kind of pushing back against. I was sort of starting from um, scratch with these women and then inserting them into studies of other women. Um, But what that meant is that to organize all of that material, um, I felt that I would be best suited to to use my writing in the afternoons as a form of organizing um, what I had read in the morning in the archives. Most of these little church archives were only open for a couple hours in the morning anyway. So I wrote, um, I wrote most of this book actually while I was still doing the research in the archives. And I actually wrote the chapters in pairs or in triplets. So um, it's, I didn't write it chronologically. I wrote um, them in, in groups. So um, chapters uh, one, three, and five got written together, I think. Three and six were together, um, two and four, things like that. 
and then I topped it off with um, the seventh chapter uh, as I was wrapping up my dissertation. But uh, the kind of the process of writing and, and research for me t- was very wrapped up and and something that happened together. That that's a really interesting way to approach it, especially since so many church archives are only open from like nine to twelve, three days a week. Uh, that's something I've run into myself. Yeah, um, it meant that I was able to get a lot more dense material packed into the chapters, and I think. Um, to an extent, you see some of that in the chapters that they're just like very dense. But um, it also, as I felt like the book was progressing, I imagined it sort of all the chapters sort of growing together. And so that the book was written in sort of a um, a linear way rather than like a chronological way. So conceptual linearity instead of chronological linearity. Yeah, I imagined linearity. like all the chapters being kind of there already and then slowly growing together. So I, I guess an organic approach might yeah. be a good way to describe it. Well, I, I quite frankly, I loved how it turned out. Um, and and you, I find it interesting that you mentioned that you were sort of taking these women that had been so understudied. And so for you, it was less about pushing back against a historiography and more about inserting the Sororas into sort of other studies of religious women during this time period. And one of the things that I found so interesting and fascinating about this book was the way that you sort of dealt with the standard narrative concerning the implementation of the Council of Trent, uh, especially regarding the sort of ostensible limitations that Trent placed upon sort of licit or approved ways of religious wife life for women. Um, and you sort of got into this very particular situation of how Basque communities kind of grappled with that and dealt with that and uh, sort of came to different ama- arrangements than perhaps what Trent intended. Uh, so I was wondering if you could sort of talk about uh, that sort of ambiguous position of the Sororas, uh, like what their religious style of life was like, and uh, you know, sort of how that was a part of the local religious scene in the Basque communities and the Basque countries that you were examining? Yeah. So on the one hand, yes, there, there was no long-term study, no full study of the sorors. There had been a handful of kind of small local studies, like here are the sorors of this one town. Um, But the important thing, as I saw it, was that they had a lot of similarities with other forms of religious, devout lay religious life in Europe, like the Beatas or the Beguines. But they were so different because they actually went through an examination process like priests. They held a job, um, much like the male lay clergy. Uh, They they had a stipend and a house, and they took no vows like nuns. Um, So basically, this was a form of labor that was recognized and, um, more importantly, um, rewarded with money. And so it was religious life that celebrated essentially feminine work uh, that would usually go unrewarded, um, you know, household work, and putting that in the context of um, useful and pragmatic religious service. So in that context, I saw these women as very different from other forms of religious life, but that still should be put in that in conversation with them to kind of broaden how we think about women's options um, at the counter-reformation period as well as after. Um, So I was always kind of playing with that, those two kind of poles that I didn't want to just make this be 
uh, adding sororas to the already long list of all the different iterations, especially of the different kinds of um, Italian women, like the um, the tertiaries and the pinzolke and the, um, the Dominican penitent women. But I also wanted to um, to make sure that they fit in their world in which they belonged, and that was the variability of female religious life. So putting this in kind of conversation with Trent um, meant to really understand why they appeared in the Basque country and sort of what their their role was and why they were so useful. So in being um, appointed and examined and licensed, much like the clergy, the sorors took a title, um, again, like the clergy, and this was actually a paper title and like an actual real examination and an actual installation process that was um, documented by notaries. And once they took that um, position, they had this job for life. And it came with um, a salary. Um, they had to do basic work to um, take care of churches or shrines. Um, but the important thing was that if this work didn't suit them or if they wanted to go back and get married eventually, they could because they were only taking simple promises and not formal vows like nuns. They wouldn't perjure themselves if they went back to the secular life. So what this ultimately meant is that this was an extraordinarily um, flexible form of religious life that was suited for women and created just for women because this is women's work. And it also meant that um, it was a place that women had more flexibility. That this appeared only in the Basque country um, was something that slightly out of the scope of my book, but something I still had to consider. And those were the sort of longer um, anthropological um, and ethnographic studies of the Basque country and understanding sort of the pastoral role of um, labor in the Basque country, as well as um, why men might be gone for long periods of time, making it sort of natural that women would take these roles. Um, and then coming back to Trent, this then um, was an example and coming back to why I was interested in this project in the first place and look, looking at uh, clerical misbehavior um, and understanding how reform of male and female religious life was really a process of compromise. And that, as I con concluded across a number of the different kind of side projects I've also had, is that um, the Reformation worked best when it was met with compromise at the local level. And letting the sororas continue on, even if they technically contradicted some of the um, Tridentine and the Re Reformation decrees, and especially um, Circa Pastoralis, which happened right after Trent, um, that it was considered much more disruptive to try to suppress the sororas. And that I think there was tacit understanding at the ground level and at the diocesan level that to get the bigger picture of reform implemented, it was okay to let certain things slide because those would actually probably be helpful in ensuring um, the bigger battles were won. And so for that reason, the sororas were not necessarily, I would say, overlooked, but wrapped up into kind of tacit approval of reform at the local level. Yeah, no, I, I really thought that was a very interesting uh, point to make about sort of how this got sort of all locally negotiated on a community and at a diocesan level. And so I, I guess I would like to, you know, sort of ask, how did women become sororas? Like you, you did sort of portray this as a flexible, in, you know, institution for lack of a better term. Uh 
if if it didn't if women didn't find that the life suited them they they did only take simple vows and they could move on to you know being married or heading in another direction but how did they come to this in the first place like how did both they and their communities decide that you know okay this would be a good candidate to be a sorora so after trent they and after the um the synodal decrees, which affected sorors in the Basque country, they did try to make this much more of a kind of standardized uh, process with more rules, but those things were always rather flexible and kind of ignored whenever it was necessary. Um, as far as I can tell, and what I did try to argue in this book is that this is not an example of a dumping ground. Um, and so this is sort of also responding to the um, broader understanding that, you know, we don't need, we don't, we shouldn't think about um, monasteries or female religious life as somehow the place for women who couldn't get married. Um, instead, I wanted to think about this and I wanted to emphasize that this is a place that women chose that they felt suited them better than marriage or monasticism. And so that also helps us understand both of those other professions, monasticism or or, or secular marriage, as again, not uh, definitive, so that, that that's not just what pe- women had to do, that those are choices as well. Um, so as far as I can tell, based on a lot of the testimonies in these nomination proceedings um, when sorors are appointed and installed, is that it was something that they felt very strongly about for many years. Because sororas were appointed locally, served locally, and they didn't have to leave their communities to take on the religious life. So they didn't have to go um, cloister themselves in a monastery somewhere outside of town or in a different town, but they were allowed to stay with with their communities, with their families, um, with their friends, serving local religious sites, but in a way that um, that suited them and allowed them to participate and contribute to um, communal life without removing themselves from it. So I think it's a combination of women who truly had a vocation that they wanted to become sororas, um, because they wanted to serve the religious life in that way. Um, and others that wanted to just, they wanted a role to, that would allow them to have the independence of staying in their own communities without being a burden on their families. And the other thing that's important to note is though after Trent, um, after the, the synodal Tridentine decrees in the Basque country, um, they were supposed to be at least 40. I find a lot of examples of them being much younger. So it's often that it's much younger women who want to do this. So they're not necessarily too old to get married. They just, they truly want to to serve their communities in this way. Um, taking themselves out of uh, the dangers of childbearing um, and uh, married life, many of them live quite long. I have um, a number of them that I know certainly lived into their 80s. Um, a handful that lived to be almost 100, including some of St. Ignatius's relatives. Um, and it's it's also probably important to consider just the social network that this um, provided women, the social kind of safety network, that serving with another soror as a, in a pair, usually one being a little bit older, one being a little bit younger, um, they take care of themselves, take care of each other. So it's a way of kind of ensuring that there's going to be somebody there, some companion um, in old age, and that women are even kind of thinking about this as wanting that companionship with another woman, um, even much younger. So this isn't something that they're necessarily always picking when they are they see kind of um, their their elderly years ahead of them. Um, they they see this potential to be compensated and to be. Per- 
tuck, to do something productive for their local community, but also to have that close relationship with, um, with another woman doing this. Yeah, I, I, what I found particularly interesting um, was that I, I believe that you found that, you know, sororas were expected to provide a dowry. Yeah. But you also found that that dowry was not significantly less than what it would take to actually get married. Yeah, so that's, that is something I, it's hard to, to necessarily track specifically because some dowries are so big, some are small. Um, but yeah, they were usually within the order of 30 to 100 ducats, which um, compared to other dowries I looked at for marriage, those were about um, the same. And also within range of like about how much it would probably cost to um, to buy a house in the or a little house in the Basque country at this time. Yeah. Um, houses were obviously a lot cheaper then. Yeah, no, but I just I thought it, it was an interesting way to make the point that, you know, this isn't like, OK, you failed to get married, so you're going to do this instead. It's, you know, it, it, that these women were sort of really, really committed to the, the kind of life that they were undertaking. Yeah, um, I, I probably could have emphasized this more in putting this into conversation with um, dowry trends in Europe in general. But this also helps us push back against ideas that um high profession rates of monasteries had to do with uh, the division of uh, dowries amongst daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, so this is clearly an example or a, a counter example to the fact that like, no, this isn't that marriage is too expensive. This is that, you know, fathers and communities are just as likely to dower women who want to do this as they would for women who are getting married. Um, of course, the domestic and sort of familial structures in the Basque country are pretty different than, um, mm-hmm. than Italy in particular. Uh, whereas, um, the patrimony can be, div- can, is usually given to one child and that often can be the daughter if, um, the family decides that she's just better suited at being the heiress than her, her brothers, but all younger children would then be allowed to stay home, um, under the protection of that one sibling. Yeah, no, that that was really, really interesting. Another thing that I thought was interesting, and you sort of touched on this earlier, and I'd I'd like you to hopefully expand upon it, um, the idea that, you know, Episcopal authorities, even as they're holding their synods and as they're sort of formulating their tridentine decrees, um, saw leaving sororas in place as a means, actually, to kind of achieve what they considered to be their larger objectives of reform. And uh, I, I was wondering if you could sort of talk about that a little bit more at length as to, you know, like why the Episcopal authorities would see the sororas as having sort of a valid utility in the sort of reform project. So they're never particularly explicit about the sororas. And so this was a matter of piecing together portions of synodal decrees. And for those of you who don't work with um, reform records or um, diocesan records, synods are basically the kind of uh, diocesan-wide meetings um, on important topics. So implementing um, reform decrees would would usually call a synod. Um, So one of the things that I saw with the sororas and why that they were being kind of left out of these things. And the synods, when they dealt with the sorors, tended to just say, okay, like they must be examined. Um, here's what we want to make sure they are um, of like good background and like of moral character and, and 40 years old. Um, but 
aside from that, they kind of were left up to the, um, they just were kind of left alone rather than having a decree saying like, well, you know, circuit pastoralis says we can't have any more devout lay women, that women need to be formally cloistered. Um, that was just ignored here. And I think this came down to something that I kind of put together and I was like, oh, this is actually kind of a clever um, method that they again use in the 18th century, which is just uh, kind of renaming the women. So rather than um, saying, oh, we have we have devout lay women who are, who are leading religious lives outside the cloister. Um, instead, they basically say, we don't have devout lay women. We have diocesan employees. Look, we've titled them and we've taken the jurisdiction away from the localities. And now they're diocesan employees. We've titled and licensed them and we know what they're doing. Um, so it's a kind of a, a little bit of a sleight of hand, but they essentially find a way that they can be wrapped up into a more structured diocesan authority, uh, which makes a lot of sense with um, with sort of the larger goals of reform, which is to have a better ordered um, church structure. So in terms of kind of why pragmatically that might have been the case is that they're basically the eyes on the ground. They know what's going on. Um, a lot of them, as far as I can tell, take on a maybe a, a, an educational role for girls in the communities, not teaching them how to read and write per se, that they're mostly illiterate. Um, but teaching them some basic um, doctrine and um, and religious culture. For the priests, um, they are useful because they do a different job. Um, they they do all sorts of um, helpful things around the church, getting the church ready, but also making sure that uh, communities feel like they have a, a very close personal attachment. Um, and then the kind of the more sinister thing here is that I think the diocese was seen, well, these are, you know, if we have these women on our side, they can also report back and let us know if the priests are doing their job. Like, are they drunk all the time? Are they um, like stealing things? Are they actually there? Uh, and the sororas know if the priest is there or if he's absenting themself, himself. And so in cultivating this ally, the diocese actually really did a smart thing in setting um, these Basque parishes up to, to actually implement reform in a very productive way. Yeah, and and I take it that was why you were finding sororas testifying against badly behaved priests. Yeah, I think yeah. that that sort of like answered that original question, and obviously I got a lot more um, complicated about like you know not just why, but what else are they doing? Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's that's these sort of questions started to fit into place as I as I was reading more of these records. Yeah, uh, so the, they're the eyes on the ground. They're they're in yeah. their communities and they know what's going on. Which says a lot for you know just having women more involved in the church today. Um, that there's been uh, moves uh, by the Catholic Church uh, Study Council by Pope Francis to investigate whether women are, do have a historic role as deaconesses, mm -hmm. um, and the sororas are a kind of a good example of like why this maybe works so well to have women um, in these roles, and that there might be a certain amount of precedent. To oh, have yes. women in these roles. Yeah. Um, and, and the thing that, you know, I thought, you, you know, I would like to touch on again that you sort of touched on earlier is the idea that, you know, Sororos wanted to have sort of a valid religious life and a, a religious contribution to their communities, but they very firmly wanted to remain embedded in those communities, like becoming a nun was an option and going off to a monastery or a convent is, is not what they had in mind. So how did Sororas 
aside from the sort of eyes and ears of the diocese, uh, relate to those communities. Uh, and, and actually, this I found a really fascinating issue. What, what sources did you use to be able to kind of approach that question? So the different chapters in my book are roughly dealing with different kinds of sources, although there's a lot of um, kind of sharing across the chapters. Um, but the the places I see them most appear, which tells us a lot about kind of like how they're interacting, um, criminal records. So when crimes have been committed against sororas, um, those can show up in either the secular or the church archives. Um, but more importantly, sororas bringing suit against um, other people. And so for the most part, their records do show up in church archives because they're under um, a degree of kind of clerical immunity. Uh, notarial records show up in um, secular archives. They write wills um, probably more frequently than um, than married women uh, for a variety of reasons, but principally because they tend to almost always write wills before they enter the service. Um, let's see. There's a handful of inquisition records. Um, and then finally, the other record that they that have was really useful were um, records from the um, Consejo de Castilla on uh, implementing changes, specifically um, in the Bourbon period, and how that affected uh, the the functioning of local churches. So, uh, putting all those sources together, you see them absolutely integrated in um, just the administration of the parish, uh, the the benefice plan. Um, as well as just interacting with their communities on a day-to-day level that they, like everyone else, have crimes committed by themselves and against themselves. And um, they are very, like like the rest of um, their community members, are very adept at using the courts to help iron these things out. Yeah, so, uh, well, to sort of continue on the criminal record theme, uh, uh, I... One of the things I found interesting is that, you know, they, they are autonomous in the sense that they, you know, they, they do get placed under diocesan supervision, but within their communities, uh, you know, as you said, they have a salary. They, they, I believe you mentioned that they, they do have like their own living space. They basically oh, yes. get free, free housing. There's almost always a, um, a sororia attached or right, like right next to the church or the shrine that they serve at. Right. Um, but that did, in some ways, uh, on the one hand, uh, give at least some sororas the scope to at least be suspected of behaving badly. Um, and that it also, in some ways, left them more vulnerable to either, uh, shall we say, uh, verbal or even in some cases, physical attacks. Um, so I, I wondered if you could, you know, sort of address the exact kinds of situations where they might find themselves uh, being brought into a criminal court of some kind or a court of some kind, and what kinds of situations created those circumstances. Yeah, I'd say it's like about half and half split. Sora's uh, committing crimes themselves, and Sora's having crimes committed against them. Um, Obviously, in these small communities, when you see the same people every single day and, um, you know, these maybe conflict might go back um, generations or at least in the 
somebody's lifetime decades at this point. If like the Soror is in her 60s, she's got decades of maybe conflict built up amongst her neighbors. So in terms of contributing to the society and wanting to stay in your community and serve the church in that community, um, there's sort of like the two sides of that. Um, but that's exactly the same thing you see with the male clergy, that they um, they get into conflict with, uh, with their community members um, pr- probably just because they are so deeply tied to their community and they grew up with them. Um, so once they become a priest or a sorora, that doesn't change who they are. They're still a member of their community mm-hmm. and they still have the same kinds of maybe tension with their parishioners and um, that, you know, explodes every now and then. Um, in terms of the sort of suggestion that they may be using the sororia for um misbehavior or criminal activity um, that falls into several categories, but principally that like, you know, they're just sororas for kind of having the house and they're just maybe having parties there, um, that they're sort of dissolute women. Uh, That's a fairly common accusation for for any women um, in sort of uh, female spheres. You know, nuns have that long stereotype of just being um, like overly sexualized. Uh, the other place that you see um, accusations against them are that they are engaged in um, illicit liaisons with priests or with um, clerical students sometimes. And those, I think, are generally um, rare. Uh, obviously, the court records tend to emphasize um, conflict and misbehavior over ordinary behavior. So you don't see like just the sores that you know live these normal lives and never um, really misstepped. You you get the records that make it seem like there's no had... proof of success because it's not a problem, right? And you know when a sora is accused of having an affair with a priest, then of course that generates a, a, a record. If if the community complains, like if they are okay with it, probably not going to cause a, a a record to be made. Um, so that makes it seem like a disproportionately that there is more conflict and sort of um, sexual liaison with the priests. But again, like emphasizing that I think this is very rare. And um, likewise, the cases in which uh, sororities are sexually assaulted by the clergy. I have only a handful um, of rape trials over the uh, three centuries that I looked at. Um, and then finally, the one that everybody is most um, excited about always is uh, Sora is accused of witchcraft. And um, I talk about one during the major witch trials um, in the early 17th century in this um, book. There's some earlier ones that I know of that I didn't include here. Um, but again, they're rare, but fascinating when they are accused of um, witchcraft. And I think it usually comes down to a sort of um, lost in translation situation between uh, parishioners in the clutches of the Inquisition and using the Soras as sort of um, not scapegoats, but as sort of like, well, we all know the Sora is a witch. Like, why are you paying attention to me when you should be going out? And like, this is a much bigger fish to catch. Like, don't pay attention to me. Go look at the Soror who might be abusing her, her shrine and her privilege um, in order to recruit uh, people for the devil. Um, so those are fascinating, uh, but again, uh, fairly, uh, not fairly, very representative. Yeah, yeah. Uh, witches being required to name other people who might be witches was, you know, sort of a common thing. Right. Uh, and I, I yeah. see it as that when a Basque um, parishioner or Navarrese parishioner is accusing uh, the Sorora as being a witch to the Inquisitor and saying like, hey, the Sorora is a witch, uh, Sorora is 
aren't a Castilian phenomena. So unless you have an inquisitor who's very uh, steeped in Basque culture and knows what a Sorora is, um, this accusation just basically goes right over his head about why that would be so critical in the first place. Like, it's not the same as saying my priest is a witch. The Sorora is like, the inquisitor's just like, okay, so like, what's a Sorora? Um, but I think it's supposed to carry more weight as sort of a, um, a gift to the inquisitors say like, don't pay attention to me, go after the Sorora. And that just usually goes over their head. <laughs> yeah. Well, in my experience, a lot could go over an inquisitor's head. Yeah. Um, Especially if this is these um, depositions, all of this, all of these people in this book would have been speaking uh, Basque um, and the court functionaries would have been operating in Castilian. So there is the question of language barriers also. Yeah. And so there, there, there is, you know, sort of, in some ways, these communities were probably pretty uh, unimpenetrable to outsiders, if you want to sort of cast Castilians in that kind of outsider role. Um, the interesting thing about, you know, sort of the Sororas is that, you know, as you said, you know, a, a Sorora who had an uneventful career is, is not going to necessarily show up in any of the sources that you have at your disposal because it wasn't a problem. But since Sororas were embedded in their communities, they, they could actually engender conflict, uh, not only in terms of sort of attacks or accusations from other people, but also sort of conflict around, okay, who gets to be the Sorora in the first place? And secondly, sort of intra-Sorora conflict, uh, you know, like the older, you know, sort of Sorora and the younger Sorora, if they got on well, that that would, could be a great relationship. But they didn't always get along well, according to some of the records that you have. Uh, so I, I wonder if you could uh, uh, sort of touch on sort of intra-Sorora conflict problems that might crop up in these relationships. Yeah, so most... Per- yeah. Most parishes and churches, parish churches and shrines in the Basque country would have had at least one Sorora and many would have had two. Um, and occasionally you see ones with more than that, but that's usually considered by the diocese to be um, just sort of a recipe for, for even further conflict to have kind of like uncontrolled, unregulated, um, like female convents essentially. Um, but what this means is that there's not exactly a very few options for Sororas to become Sororas, that there are, you know, for example, in um, St. Ignatius's hometown of Aspatia, there would have been somewhere um, along the lines of um, probably 11 posts for Sororas plus times two. So um, close to about 20 places for Sororas at any given time, making them kind of be on the rough uh, same numbers as the male clergy. Um, but what it means is that if Sororas are living for, um, you know, 80 years, those positions don't open up too often. Um, although I, I do think that they found places for women that they just sort of kind of became sort of unofficial sororas when they really wanted to do this. Um, but it meant that, that there was a lot of conflict over um, the appointment of sororas, especially if it was a contested position and two women really wanted that one at the same time. So families would uh, sometimes um, try to fight this by, you know, raising the dowries and they get into essentially little dowry wars by trying to offer kind of incentives if they would pick their daughters to do this. Um, And I think, again, responding to like the fact that these women just really wanted to become sororas and their families wanted to help them. Um, 
but then oftentimes like this didn't turn out to be such a wonderful situation, not as great as they thought it would be. Um, and again, they could leave if they wanted to get married. Um, St. Ignatius's sister does do that and goes, uh, she's a Sora for just a couple of years and then she goes and gets married. Um, but for the most part, if they didn't do that, they were stuck with this woman, this other woman who they might not like very much. And so again, I think that these are the exceptions and that most Sororas lived happily with their partner. Um, but the ones that did have conflict meant that the, that could essentially be a living nightmare, just as as the conflict in uh, traditional monasteries might be, just you know stuck in this like um, this closed space with these women you can't stand. I always use compare this to um, for my students, you know, just like the conflict you have in sororities. Uh, when I taught previously at the Naval Academy, I compared this to be like just imagine you are stuck on your ship with all the people you hate. Um, it's <laughs> it. You know, it's just it, it could be very it could weigh on you very mentally, like the toll mentally of just being like I'm stuck with this person and I can't stand her. Um, yeah, that that led to conflict sometimes. Again, I think it's not the norm, but definitely um, definitely shows up in the records. Okay, so it, I the sororas basically uh, have a usefulness to their community. And even conflict may be rare, but worth managing because they do have such an important role to play in the maintenance of churches and the maintenance of shrines and the education, religiously at least, of young girls. Uh, they had a niche. They, they had a societal role. And yet you do sort of uh, date this book as sort of ending in 1800 because you do sort of sort of follow the story to a conclusion of, you know, if they did manage to sort of continue in these roles in the Tridentine era, um, you know, at what point do they start getting phased out? Uh, and does utility save them? Does it help? Does it, do they get phased out even though they are useful? You know, sort of what, what were the circumstances under which they came to be more problematic in, ter- in their terms of their existence and the niche that they filled in these communities. Um, so, in bringing it to through the um, through the 18th century, the problematic aspects that I saw reflected in the records were not necessarily um, organic or re- arising from the the local level, but more uh, sort of how local structures didn't really mesh well with the aims of the bourbon reforms, which is to kind of simplify religious life and to make um, churches and and society in general more cost efficient. And so Sororas, along with all the many different shrines that they serve, so, you know, a a town with 11 shrines, like that looks kind of excessive to bourbon um, reformers. And what happens then in the 18th century is essentially the kind of shutting down of a lot of these um, these sites and rewriting benefits plans. Um, and that can cause um, conflict in terms of like the women are just being literally um, thrown out of their shrines. Um, at the end of the book, I sorry to wrap this up. I um, do look at a case in which uh, sorors do kind of get around that um, in terms of kind of fending it off and, re- and writing sort of a constitution for themselves to make themselves seem more orderly. Um, as I see this, and this is not just sort of at the end of the Sorora's existence, really, um, but it's 
it's been it's throughout their existence it's a tug and pull between local interests and the diocese so can the local localities prove that they are more useful and they need to have sororities is that more important than what the diocese wants which is to either um you know respond to uh, crown pressures or to kind of save money um or if there's too much conflict with these women or if you know localities can't get their act together to um to appoint uh, women smoothly to the sororia, then the diocese feels that they have a justification to step in. Um, and then localities then try to kind of like mediate this and hide those conflicts. So as it kind of unrolls in the, um, the 18th century, this gets out of the hands of both the diocese and the localities and really kind of succumbs to, um, to pressure from um, the central government in um, Castilla to basically eliminate the places for sororas and give those to priests and just sort of collapse a lot of the um, the living arrangements. And again, kind of coming back to how like the diocese originally had tried to, um, had found a way to just sort of rename and re uh, kind of call the sororas something different, say that they're not, they're not devout lay women, they're diocesan employees. In the 18th century, localities attempt to do the same and say, we don't have any sororas here. We just have servientes, um, like women who do serving for the church. And the diocese is like, no, 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 no. Like that, that is a sorora, just a sorora by a different name. Like none of this um, sort of these word games. But um, it is sort of nice to see kind of those same uh, conflicts and same kind of interactions coming back in sort of cyclical ways across the three centuries in this sort of like a tug and pull between localities and um, and authorities about who knows best, basically, uh, who knows best about how to run local religious life. Yeah, and I really uh, appreciated the way that you closed your book uh, by talking about the church women who guided you on tours of churches in the Basque country today, yeah. uh, and how they they're the ones who basically, in some ways, are the church. They clean the church, they know the church, they know the church best, and that they are just very proud of their role and very proud of what they contribute to church upkeep and local knowledge of the church. I thought that was a really beautiful way to end it. Yeah, it's also kind of a, um, it's a little bit contradictory too, because, you know, they were supposed to have been repressed after the Bourbon reforms and certainly after um, the wars and the early 19th century where a lot of um, churches and shrines got destroyed and the soror, if there had been some very ancient sororas left, um, thrown out of their um, their homes and sort of uh, as they escaped the French army. Um, but the fact that they some of them seem to have just sort of carried on, I guess not being paid um, and not with their, their sort of original privileges, but I think now more of them are being appointed and the diocese does say that it knows who they are. Um, I'm not sure how, how well they do in terms of keeping track of that, because I think it is more of a local position now. Um, but that it is something, a way that lo- localities can kind of situate themselves and promote a sense of Basque culture and Basque identity. Um, again, in a way that's very different from, um, you know, Castilian culture. So it, it does get wrapped up a little bit, I think, in some Basque nationalism. But the Sororas are such a good example of 
being different, um, but also having just a kind of innovative uh, thing that is just Basque. And so bringing Sororas back and having Sororas um, take care of sites uh, has, I think, uh, gained in popularity in the last few decades. Oh, that's so interesting. So uh, we don't want to take up too much of your time today, but is there any last things you want to share with us about the Sororas and the Basque country? Well, I think the one thing I could say is that though I crammed as much of my research into this book as possible, there's so much that I couldn't put in. And the archives in Pamplona and in uh, San Sebastian and Bilbao and Vitoria and Onyati, all over the place have such rich records. There are literally thousands of other um, dissertation projects there. Uh, there's, you know, there's probably a whole other project in the sources that I couldn't even put in in this book. Like I said, I really didn't put much about the 17 or the uh, the 1570s witches. Um, I am working now on a different project on Saint Ignatius's relationship to his um, female relatives who were Sororas, but that's earlier than this book, um, and that's a whole other, a really interesting um, project to do with the Sororas uh, in terms of de- uh, clerical misbehavior. Um, local dynamics, the, the records are so rich and there's just, there are so many other projects that could be done. So I, I mean, I hope that more people want to start working on the Basque country, Spanish history. Obviously I, I you know, this, these towns are lovely and that they're, they're sort of unknown, but there is so much um, more work to be done. Well, that's wonderful. And I hope some graduate students out there take you up on that. Yes, uh, so me too. Th- Thank you very much for your time today. It was it was a wonderful read. I very much enjoyed the book, and I very much enjoy you sharing it with the podcast today. Well, I would, I guess, I would like to just finally, you know, thank the people that um, that are protecting these sources, the church archives, and um, they're the ones that you know actually made it possible for me to reach these records. So, thank you, thank you for the interview, and thank you for all the people that are doing the preservation work. That is a great note. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you.